Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. On today's jam-packed episode, we're going to be sitting down with three experts on the emergence of white supremacy, right-wing extremist groups in North America, and transitions into and out of political violence more generally. With the rise of the so-called alternative right, today presents a great opportunity for us to dig deep into questions related to what drives people into and out of white supremacist ideas and movements. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fascinating episode of What's That Noise? Today we have another very special episode, and it's an episode I've been trying to get together for a little while now. We're joined by three scholars working in the areas of right-wing extremism, political violence, and violent radicalization. The bipartisan divide has really become central in our public sphere. In Canada, in the US, and elsewhere, the emergence of what some have called an alt-right or alternative right has been thrust into public discourse. There have been several notable events that have triggered public interest in conservative politics and the emergence of uh, this alt-right movement. From the Emanuel AME shooting in Charleston to the events that took place in Charlottesville last summer and the rise in popularity of some conservative world leaders, it is clear that in 2018 political conflicts seem to be at an all-time high. It is therefore important to reflect on the political violence that is percolating our society. What is more, these conflicts seem to be founded on imaginations of nationalism that intersect with important issues of race, class, and gender, as well as important matters of immigration, security, surveillance, and social exclusion. And for those reasons, I was really, really interested in hearing from some of the experts in this field. Today's episode features Dr. Ryan Scrivens, a Horizon Postdoctoral Fellow at Concordia University. And Ryan is working with Project Someone, and this project seeks to build resilience against hatred in Canada. I'm also joined by Dr. Amar M. Rizingnam, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Waterloo and a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. I'm also sitting down with Bradley Galloway, who is working with the Against Violent Extremism Network to develop research on right-wing extremists and help people looking to leave those movements. For 13 years, Brad was also an influential member of the Canadian white supremacist movement. Brad was also a leader of a chapter of a neo-Nazi group known as Volksfront in British Columbia, before deciding to walk away and pursue higher education. Today, Brad is finishing up his criminology degree at the University of Fraser Valley, while continuing to develop work on youth radicalization and volunteering with a variety of organizations that help others quit extremism. And with those introductions out of the way, please enjoy the show. We're sitting down in Oshawa. Ontario, Canada, my alma mater. Uh, we're at UIT for their uh, for the biannual conference of the International Hate Studies, uh, and I'm sitting down with uh, uh, three gentlemen um, that I will let introduce themselves. We'll start with you, Ryan. My name is Ryan Scrivens. I'm a Horizon postdoc fellow at Concordia University, and I'm working with Project Someone to develop ways to build resiliency against hatred and violent extremism. Tamar. I'm uh, Amar Amarasingham. I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and a postdoc at the University of Waterloo. I think that's about it for now. I'm Brad Galloway. I guess I'm uh, working right now with uh, the Against Violent Extremism Network, uh, working with uh, developing uh, research on former extremists and working to try to help people uh, leave uh, violent movements, as well as I am working with the Organization for Prevention of Violence in Alberta, working on singular provincial issues, uh, dealing with countering violent extremism again. And I'm also a fourth year criminology student at uh, University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. And I'm just about to wind up my my, uh, degree in criminology right now. Cool. So the this podcast, this particular podcast, I've been trying to get going for quite some time, uh, and I've been bugging these three guys to to join me on Twitter uh, and by email for for a very long time. And part of the reason for that is the Donald Trump. 
Donald the Trump. Donald Trump. So we live in a in a time um, where Donald Trump has has really legitimized a lot of uh, different forms of violence and different ideas and different beliefs. Uh, and it's part of the reasons why this conference, this particular International Hate Studies Conference, uh, is is so necessary. Uh, and and dialogues around hate crime and dialogues around extremism are so uh, needed and necessary. Um, so having these three guys here with three different um, perspectives is absolutely fascinating. And, and I think this podcast and having a podcast on hate um, particularly is very, very interesting. So I wanted to get a little bit of a less formal background. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Ryan. What is it that you're interested in that it has nothing to do with your credentials or what you do as a postdoc? Sadly, I don't do anything but work. <laughs> I'm always in trouble because I wake up at 5.30 every morning, check my emails, go for a quick drive, and then come and then I work. I work till 8, 9 o'clock, basically every night. My partner has forced me to take a weekend off or a day off here or there. So to be completely frank, I don't do much with my free time. I like to travel mm. here and there, but most of it involves work-related yeah. matters. Um, when like I did, five, maybe the five thirty drive is not interesting. A little bit more informally, how I got into this area of research, or how I got into criminology in general, was I used to be on the other side of the line or the the law. Essentially, um, growing up, I got in a lot of trouble um, in school uh, and with the law, so on and so forth. And you were a bad boy. I was getting in some trouble, yeah. Um, and I barely made it out of high school. Uh, I I didn't do well enough to get to, into university, so I went to college. And at that time, I was I was essentially bribed into either getting a full-time job and moving out of the house. My dad would always say, I'd "Be a Walmart reader." Sorry to anybody who's a Walmart reader, or go try to pursue some higher education. So I did law and security administrations. I believe you did uh, police foundation. Okay, funny story. We got to get to this. Um, Ryan Scrivens and I are both from UOIT. We both did our undergrad at UOIT. And Ryan Scrivens was once upon a time a uh, TA for me in one of, uh, I forget what, what class it was. Uh, and crime. Yeah, uh, must have gave me probably a C, to nope. be honest. I don't remember what it was. But uh, we both come from UOIT and, and we both went to Durham College beforehand yep. i went for police foundation okay okay so i was in law and security and at that time i still was kind of getting into trouble here and there and eventually i uh, i almost got kicked out of college like imagine almost getting kicked Is out that of even college. possible it was possible i just didn't go very often so they either they were going to kick me out so um i essentially pulled up my socks i knew that i was interested in criminology and i just started to grind it out I, I was i was fascinated by why people engage in crime i was particularly interested in hate motivated crimes the more violent aspect of them and here i am today studying uh hate groups in canada and looking more broadly at how extremists and terrorists communicate online amar how did you get into this area of research um i'm not sure actually i'm i'm my my first day of undergrad was 9 11 um so i thought that might be important uh, going forward first day First day of undergrad, um, the students had pulled into the middle of the quad at U, U of T Scarborough. I didn't go to UOIT, um, but they pulled into the middle of the uh, University of Scar uh, Toronto at Scarborough campus with their big tube televisions that we had back then. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone was crowded around, and that's how I was like, huh, people do things that are crazy for crazy reasons. Um, so I studied poli sci, studied history, studied different languages. Uh, studied religious studies, um, did my master's and PhD in similar topics on war, post-war, civil war, diaspora politics, uh, why people in one country get involved in the politics of another country. Um, that's where I am. Brad, you probably have the, the most interesting uh, story out of all of us. He went um, to OIT. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't... Yeah, I guess it's I in my adolescence I, I kind of like I was always searching for some kind of like uh something that really mattered to me, right? Like uh whether it, you know I, I got involved in sports, I got involved in all those types of things, but uh it just that wasn't enough like thrill for me. There wasn't enough like I wasn't getting enough out of it and I maybe I just wasn't good enough at it. I don't know. There was always all sorts of reasons why. And then I ended up hanging out with some bad folks, just like, you know, Ryan was saying, like I got into trouble, I got into trouble with the law, I got you know, just I went through ups and downs with the criminal justice system and I was always like wanting to work in like security or policing. But I never wanted to tell my, you know, 
my compatriot said I'm hanging around with, hey, uh, you know, I, I got a job as a loss prevention, you know, store, store guy or whatever, right? Or get like, a background check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, you didn't want to, whatever. So I, I ended up like hanging out with these pretty awful people. We, we started selling drugs when I was a kid and stuff like that, doing some time in jail. And then from there, I like, I met this guy from earlier in my life, in my late teens. And uh, he just had some something about him it looked like he you know was uh, dressed up like a skinhead like white power skinhead kind of type guy and i trusted this guy like we did dumb dumb stuff together when we were younger so i was like oh okay well you know trust what this guy says so i started hanging out with him and i got myself entangled in the in the far right movement in canada for 12 13 the next 12 13 years is where i i spent uh time in toronto and the west coast uh you know while working in security and and uh, taking courses in in uh, loss prevention and risk assessment at, at, at colleges uh, getting involved in some pretty uh, some pretty crazy stuff uh, I ended up losing jobs ended up losing you know positive sort of relationships in in my life and just getting really engrossed into this movement I ended up you know I guess leading this uh, British Columbia hate movement and this group called Volksfront for a number of years and uh, yeah, then all of that sort of that came crashing down when I, when I realized there's got to be something better out there in in life, and I, I ended up sort of having kids and looking into them and looking into my wife and looking like just there was so much more. I fi- I figured that what I was doing was wasting my time, and and I had to attach myself to something much more positive and not to mention the ultimatums from from the wife and and also the violence and the tiresome like involved in like this ideology of hate every like day in day out you had to play this role day in day out it was like almost like you know just exhausting so from there I just like I learned I learned from my wife and kid my young daughter at the time you know what sort of compassion was I was slowly learning how to get away from this these movements and I slowly detached myself from the actual engagement in these groups or disengagement if you want to call it that and uh then i you know i just i couldn't i did all these you know useless jobs worked in liquor stores as a store clerk and worked in like a hospital as a late night like floor cleanup guy i knew there was something more though so i signed up for school in criminology i always wanted to do it mm-hmm. and i was i was worried about it because of who i was hanging out with so i decided yep yeah, i'm that's now i'm gonna do it so um, about two years into that, I met I met uh, Ryan and and uh, and and Barb, I guess, yeah. and we we started having dialogue and talking about the far right and and I guess I was interested in what they were doing and that they they of course were researching the far right. So um, you know we were mutually interested in in working together in some way or another and and yeah, so we're here today at a at a conference and I. And I guess um, the, Amara's role in this too. Like I, I'm working with the Against Violent Extremism Network right now, and we're doing a relaunch in North America on on trying to, you know, suss out ways that we can uh, reintegrate people into into society after they've done some prison time. And also, we're trying to look at helping formers and helping people out of the far right or other extremist movements too. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are now. That's where we're sitting at this uh, this conference, and I'm. I guess I'm presenting a paper tomorrow, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, so uh, sorry for the long. He needed, he needed yeah. something more meaningful, so he thought he would join academia. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, I kind of want to pick up on that because you said something very poignant to me earlier. Um, yeah. That is, so you lived. Uh, uh, you have all this lived experience and these two guys and then myself as well we like to study these things and at the end of the day the question is like why are people so crazy (laughs) and that's really what the the question is right uh, what are your thoughts on this question? How, can we answer this? Um, no, I think, uh, I mean, I, I use crazy just as a passing terminology, yeah. but I think, I think the fundamental question is, can we fully understand or wrap our heads around people who do things for a cause, right? And, and which may be fundamentally outside of our frame of reference, whether it be believing that the 7th century caliphate has been reborn in 2014, or that you believe that a... Uh, an imminent race war is around the corner, which is going to solve all of our all of our. Uh, I'm not my problems, but <laughs> it could be problematic for you, though. Yeah, it could Hashtag be. Hashtag brown dynamite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I think I think it's some of these views and some of these worldviews which completely transform people's lives are completely outside of most people's frames of reference. Mm. Um, and I think understanding them, underst- understanding why they tick, what makes them tick is, is, I mean, it's not the question, but it's the question that I think interests a lot of us. I think from my perspective, once you, once you go down these, these wormholes or whatever of extremism or gangs or any kind of these violent movements, like I think what I found when I was like five years in or so, or no, maybe it was less than that. I I had a really violent incident happen to me Mm. and like it made me think about the violence later that I, that my group was causing. So I think what from, from a researcher's perspective, like Amar and Ryan here, like, yeah, like how do we solve the crazy? Well, I think one th- one perspective is finding out from people who were there mm-hmm. or from victims of that, hey, what does this do? Like, you know, what like what does it look from your perspective? How do we look at that from, you know, uh, from o- outsiders looking in? Like, how does that feel to be the victim of those things? How does it feel to be involved in those things? And how do we, you know, bring ourselves to look at these things in a in a better fashion that we can try and look at, you know, change Mm-hmm. I, I wonder though whether you were already kind of primed to feel that way when that incident happened, right? Yeah. Because for other people, that violence is obligatory yeah. or necessary to for the cause, mm-hmm. and so you almost have to be ready mm-hmm. <laughs> in the course of your life for something to happen to you that puts you in a different course. Because I mean, mm-hmm. I've talked to guys with in ISIS and in other groups where you tell them about crazy things that are happening to civilians and they're like this is what god ordained yep right um, so well, they're not, see, they're not the actually, same thing with the order and like the yeah. far right like that you know when i talk to those guys they're in prison they send me letters or whatever and they're like you know a couple of these guys are dead now that i'm talking about but um it's same idea like we will do as much time in prison for this or we will do uh, we will do as far as to death like robert j matthews or whatever i will shoot at the fbi and get be killed mm. right well that's ultimate sacrifice. For what, though? Mm-hmm. For a made-up cause, basically. And that's where we're sitting here together. We're, you know, on the outside looking back in, luckily now. But it's like, uh, you know, why would you want to do that? Like, why, what would compel somebody to want to make that ultimate sacrifice for something that isn't, you know, we, I don't know. I guess for me, like, when I, I don't like using the word crazy when I'm talking about the right-wing extremist movement, for example, because it, it really, it really makes it... Because you're sympathetic. Yeah, exactly. It, it kind of, whatever. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I guess for me, there is some element of truth to these radical ideologies. It's obviously a radical ideology nonetheless, but I think that when we start calling it crazy, we, we make this assumption that there's no legitimacy simple, to the grievances. So I think for it's me... It's also a loaded term. Yeah, yeah. so I... I, I, I I, for the right wing movement in particular, because in Canada we've had this this whole idea, especially like in the media and and up until 2015 or so, where we were treating the right wing extremist movement or the individuals as crazy. When in turn we should be looking at the yeah. broader culture within which these groups reside. So for me, um, I, I I frantically avoid using the term crazy because mm-hmm. it does really push aside the fact that these individuals do come from uh, communities that are in fact racist and uh, intolerant um, so when we start to call these people crazy it's like yeah you know it's just like an offshoot of this one crazy guy or girl yeah. you can ignore them exactly them. exactly it doesn't really address the underlying issues here. I think they limit the far right like when people talk about it mm-hmm. when they when they use that and there's something that really bothers me because I was there once and like oh well they're just, this guy's just mentally ill like they often refer to far right you know especially like the uh, I forget, I'm forgetting his name right now Dylan Roof. Mm. They, they're, they're suggesting that he has a, a mental illness or whatever. Well, seriously, though, when I was in and around these guys in the far right movement, li- I likely myself had mental illness mm. to day in, day out to be able to commit violence against people you don't know. You've got to be in some other frame of mind to do this. You cannot be of, of uh, clear thought. You cannot like there's a lot there's a lot wrong with these people. But I, I don't think we can blame mental illness for no, the think, violence that's not fair no and i think uh, the entire like 50 years of research says the exact opposite right it's that <laughs> it's that it's not so much that i mean i've heard pundits say this on tv like violent people will do violent things and peaceful people will do peaceful things well 
50 years of social psychological research says no you take random people off the street you put them into very interesting situations and they will completely dehumanize every other person yeah, in the room yeah. Stanford prison experiment being mm-hmm. the famous one mm-hmm. right like very normal people you could take off the street put them into a certain group dynamic and they will behave like sociopaths yeah. um, so it's not uh, it's an easy dismissal to say bad people do bad things that's yeah. just not hasn't proven to be the case so my most of my research aligns with with so-called terrorism studies and i think um talking terror uh, john morrison's podcast has really uh, been uh, uh very fruitful in in this to to move the discussion beyond individual psychopathy that's not a good enough discussion for for us and we're all um a social science scientists uh in this room and i'm i'm curious when we think of transitions into and out of um, violent conflict uh, of a political origin can we understand it through a snapshot model that there are these instances that we can we should intervene upon and that could be the difference these these portrait moments where that's where we should have uh, uh, focused and i'm i'm looking uh, to to brad um to kind of uh, enlighten us as onlookers because you experience this can you can you sort of uh, simplify or reduce your engagement or disengagement as the 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 literature likes to put it in moments i i think i can provide some examples and maybe a little bit of sort of in a, some roundabout manner, explain it. Um, like I know, I know my like radicalization. I I hate the term really because it's never the same, right? I absolutely but hate the term. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not something I, you know, I don't think I was first first of all because in my personal experience, I don't believe I was like, you know, radicalized really into like because the the skinhead movement is a youth subcultural movement. It's a it's a social movement with really bad undertones, mm. you know, with racial undertones and, and not everybody that I was around was believing in white, like white supremacy and, you know, we're going to kill Jews and we're going to do this or that. Some of them really realistically just like the skinhead music or, and my recruiter, so we can talk about recruitment. He knew what I was after. Like he, he could see, he's like, Oh, this guy likes music. Like I like punk music and metal. So what did he do? He sold me on the, the white power music. And from there, it was pretty easy. It was like, oh, come out to a concert. Come out and have some beers. It's a social. It's a, don't worry, brotherhood. You'll be fine. And I really liked that because I had no belonging anywhere else. So the way, you know, because in social sciences, you we understand is, you know, we socialize. We Socialization is very important, especially to teenagers. So my socialization was with the, this group of people who are seem to be, looking out for me and 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 i i felt comfortable around these people because they made me feel comfortable but the underlying factors i didn't know later were that you know some of these guys were involved in organized hate groups which Mm. i'd start to develop an affinity for while i was after time spent with this group and that's that's their that's the goal with these recruiters is to get you to there but you know a lot of them like as as the research like ryan and bars work like it like shows that people leave a lot of people leave like some people try it out they're like ah it's not for me i'm i'll I'll get out of here after a a couple months even a couple weeks i've seen people come to one party and they're gone and you don't see Mm -hmm. them ever again right um but for me it was it was that sense of belonging and and i think on the other side on the disengagement side again it was that sense of belonging like amara was saying it's like now i've chosen academia as my belonging well i could have chosen like I, I like I said earlier when I gave the presentation, it's like I I could have chosen the IRA if a guy came to me at that point. Mm-hmm. Like I was just at a point in my life where I had I I believed, you know, I had so much like self. I, I was looking for my myself at that time, just like I was looking for myself when I was coming away from the movement. I think, and that's something that we can use when we're talking to people that want to come away from these types of movements. Is like let's not challenge the ideology because ideologies are okay. You can. You can hate whoever you want, but let's try to challenge them just to be to understand other human beings first, because then they'll get they'll get to know over time. I believe they'll get to know that those people can be good people as well, whoever they're choosing to hate, whichever thing it is that they don't like. So with the intervention work that I've done after myself coming out, that's sort of what I use when I'm talking with people. I'm like, okay, let's 
Let's talk about uh, the Filipino guy that, uh, you know, when guys from the far right, I'm just like, hey, let's let's just have a conversation about those those others that treated you well somewhere in your life, because it's important to know that there's no way that you could hate all human beings. Mm. There's there's no friggin way like we're we're inherently, I believe, you know, we do have a use for other human beings. So, mm. I mean, there's got to be some point, especially growing up in Canadian society, specifically, like we should be able to find some point in our lives where we interacted with people from other cultures and it was positive. So I start trying to talk to them about that and then we can move, you know, through that. And that was helpful for me because I, that's when I thought back of like a Jewish doctor saving my life or the Jamaican guy at my work who was just more solid than any white dude I ever met. You know, like that's, that's really like what it came down to is like just not trying to understand myself and, and saying, well, these guys, they don't stick up for me for nothing. But I got this guy at my work who's like, He's not judging me if I'm a skinhead or not. He's just saying, hey, stop fucking around. You know, like, come on, stop going out and, and getting in fights and going to jail. Mm. Like, he knew what I was into. And he was the blackest dude in all of Toronto at the time that I knew. You know, mm-hmm. and he was still trying to, like, that's the type of stuff that we need to be doing, mm-hmm. you know, to help others, right? And I think to build on Brad's point, um, issues around vulnerability. Uh, Brad made a good point. Back when he was becoming, quote, unquote, radicalized, he could have joined... The IRA, you know, anybody who would have given them some sense of belonging. Yeah. I know for myself, like, I hung out with some pretty bad dudes because I didn't see much value in myself at the time. And I was looking for something. I didn't know what it was. But I think that it's important in, in terms of us trying to respond to this is, is find a way to, fi- to, to target soft targets, people who are starting to go down these paths. I mean, research has shown us that family members can see these signs, uh, school teachers, so on and so forth. So the challenge becomes for us as researchers is trying to offer up maybe indicators or whatever. But um, I think Brad raises a really good point. It really comes down to people who feel vulnerable. And I think that at that time, Brad felt vulnerable. And another important point is that it really, this radicalization phenomenon really comes down to who you know and who you're connected with at the time. Um, I wasn't connected with skinheads at the time. I grew up in in Markham, which was a very, very fluent and uh, space. Uh, I had a lot of black friends. I, I didn't hang out with uh, with just predominantly white people. But if I did, perhaps, and if perhaps I was hanging out in certain parts of North York or Oshawa or so on and so forth, I could have gone down those paths as well. So I think it's important to realize that this phenomenon of radicalization isn't something that just comes out of nowhere. Uh, there's there's a whole backdrop to it as well. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a happenstance component to it, right? And I think a lot of the early literature. <clears throat> on who joins cults, for example, like there's there's very interesting parallels there where they say, uh, you know, Eileen Barker's famous books. There's a scene in there where she says, or one of the former members, uh, I think it was the Hare Krishnas or something, where she says, uh, or the Moonies, sorry, where she basically says, there could have been a bunch of people walking down the street who wanted to go build ha- homes in Guatemala, and I would have gone with them. Yeah. I was I was in that position where it could have literally been anyone walking down the street, and I would have joined. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of opportunism there but uh there's also a kind of push factor that brought them to that street in the first place um and that pathway is very different for every person which makes it which makes this question very difficult um and and so that this is why when 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 there's a kind of one-stop solution for some of these things it doesn't really work because the reason why a somali refugee from edmonton left for syria is very different than why a white convert from toronto goes to syria um even though they're both in syria so i think looking back over somebody's life um, to in order to find their kind of causal points becomes very difficult because that's our interpretation of their life, right? I, I saw this happen after Zihaf Bibo's attack in Ottawa mm-hmm. where we combed through his life and said, oh, he, was a, he smoked weed once and he <laughs> shoplifted and he got kicked out of a mosque once. And so looking back over your life, you're pointing to these things as causal mechanisms. But mm-hmm. at the time, they may have meant nothing to him. Yeah. Um, and so it's very difficult to kind of draw these linear lines towards normal person, mm-hmm. quote unquote normal to quote unquote radical in yeah, any meaning. It's in very nebulous, way. like the radicalization. Yeah. It's how do we, we, yeah. we can't frame it just simply. Yeah. It's happened so differently on, you know, so many different levels, especially like the people that are leaving here to go somewhere else. And then what do we do with them when they come back? And like, that's the, that's an ultimate question from the far right perspective. And I think in, and also in the in perspective when we're talking about jihadi stuff as well, it's it's like, well, what do we do with them? Well, I don't know. We we got to look at them too. We got to we got to help mm-hmm. these 
people before they do something bad again. Like, let's try and intervene there, right? And to build on that, Derek, I know that you've uh, published a piece or two on your thoughts on radicalization. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, for the <laughs> listeners, you could uh, provide us a quick and dirty or a rundown. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for the shout out, Ryan. I, I, I appreciate it. So m- my, my area of, of work really challenges this idea that we can identify these push and pull factors as easily as we like to believe we can in any realm that it is so social and it is so embedded in a particular culture a particular atmosphere that is at once pushing and pulling and tugging and throwing and jolting and all of these things it's so complex that our search for causes leads us down rabbit holes of interventions that are more challenging to our own civil liberties than the benefits of those interventions. So, so my work on radicalization really tries tries to get us to stop talking about radicalization. That stop using this frame of pathways in and out of so-called terrorism, but you can apply that same logic to um, right-wing extremism or any form of politically oriented violence, and focus on the social causes that alienate people in general. Yeah. Because how do they you, get there? Exactly. If you alienate large groups of people and you exclude them from all of the benefits of society, that all all of the great things that Donald Trump likes to say and all the great things that we think of uh, in Canada and you alienate groups of people you're going to have 10 15 5 3 17 percent of those people engaging in forms of civil disobedience all the way up to um, uh, so-called terrorism and, uh, and extremism so part of my work is is to get us moving beyond this causal uh, uh, framework for understanding this and part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was to try to tease that out and and try to 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 figure out how do we identify some of these issues without giving up our civil liberties and without crafting these these challenging interventions building on ryan's point i'd like to talk a bit about motive because i know there's lots of different maybe lots of different perspectives on that and maybe that's talked about too much i know like last night ryan we like talked about it briefly when we were watching the news or this morning or whenever it was like i think that's talked too too much or far more than it should be just like radicalization i think it's like well what are we talking about motive we don't even know who's done in in this stuff yet Mm-hmm. So what, you know, or like, what's the motive of uh, all white supremacy? How the hell do we know? Why are people, why is the media talking about that? That's not a question because there's no similar motive. Like there's like the guy, Dylan Roof is not the similar motive as the guy who did the, the shooting at the Quebec mosque. Mm-hmm. Like this, it's, it's, yeah, it's similar, but it's different. Yeah, and you you referenced it earlier that we love to comb through the background of yeah. these people after the fact, as if uh, he smoked weed when he was. I say he because he's predominantly a he. We yeah. know this from the statistics. Yeah, uh, and he smoked weed when he was fourteen years old. Therefore, he was fall. He's obviously a criminal. He was being a fourteen-year-old, uh, huh. uh, and it's that obsession i think it's a cultural phenomenon it's it's yeah. it's beyond um terrorism studies so far and it's beyond um what we know in academia it's become something so much bigger um and because of that it presents a whole bunch of challenges which i think all of our research in different ways um really focuses on mm-hmm. no i think i think certain kinds of violence are accepted uh, and expected, whereas I think in the West, especially, um, you know, there's some good work on kind of late modern theory, which says, you know, certain kinds of violence, and this goes to your question of motive, is uh, so out of the ordinary in our daily life. Gang violence, not one of those. Mm. Uh, domestic violence, not one of those. But ideologically motivated, religiously motivated violence is one of those. And we immediately want to know why they did that Mm -hmm. um and and we immediately want to we spend a lot of time talking about it right whenever uh, i remember on twitter once that uh van drove down young street in april Mm. everybody was saying this guy adopted the tactic of the islamic state probably something related to the islamic state then people said oh he kind of looks white maybe it's not an islamic Mm -hmm. state thing so we want to know where to what box to put these guys in immediately right because that that means you can make sense of everything else if you can say he's a if you can say he he liked a trump facebook page that tells us a lot 
apparently, right? <laughs> um, and so, so that's why he killed 28 people or whatever yeah. because he let no, uh, no, yeah, it's weird. No, but we want to say we want to ideologically pin them down mm-hmm. because because that sort of violence, the the kind of politicized violence, still really doesn't make sense to us in our daily life because we. Uh, we encounter so little of it in our in our everyday life that it seems so out of the ordinary, which is also why it's so terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is why ter- terrorism commands as much attention as it does. I think finding the motive too, like when it's so broad, like widespread, like it is, I think that like feeds the moral panic. Like it, it just totally like because they're on the big search, they're on the hunt for the the motive why he did it. Are you how many Trump posts did he like, or how many this did he like? Well, I mean. I know from just hearing from just regular people in society, as soon as uh, that thing happened, they're like, oh, it has to be. They, like, they've already developed an opinion because, like you said, they've, and I think that's, they've that's talked deep, about ISIS or they've talked about this. I think in, yeah. our, in our human psychology, because like if an asteroid goes across the sky, like, the, you know, our, our ancients ask the question of why, right? Yeah. I think that, that, that why question isn't, isn't unique to us, but I think it, it, it's a natural response to say, like, yeah. we want to know how to interpret this immediately. Because then I can go about my life. I can place it in a box, mm-hmm. and I know who's dealing with it, and I can move about my day. Um, if if there's if there's no sense of why it happened, then the conspiracies take over. Then the then the, the weird tin hats then, come out. yeah then the weird theories come in, and it becomes very uh, chaotic and insecure. Right? It play it it it, it kind of shakes our confidence in human norms and, so, and, and, and social norms. And so we, we want to be able to place it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes us feel comfortable. Even if it is like demonizing the entire Muslim community or demonizing it or whatever. At least it's like, okay, I know where to place that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, some guy drove down on Young Street and killed them people. Like, why would he do that? Mm-hmm. It turns out he was just a lonely guy on the internet. Um, but I think that, that's a natural response to want to know where to place things, right? So we can't identify the motive. There's not a singular motive. There are multiple motives operating at multiple times at multiple levels of personality, environment, individual, uh, psychopathy, uh, mental illness, whatever. There's a whole bunch of things happening at once, but we want the motive and we need the motive as a a society, a public sphere. We need the motive. So where do we move forward? As four people who are interested in this academically, how do we make sense of this i think through the work that i've done i've realized that what i thought i knew i don't know very much about um if you're talking about sentiment analysis for example or machine learning tools i think that uh, using them to look at um extremism online it could be a helpful starting point in us trying to identify perhaps trends in radical discussions users of interest particular platforms but i think it's a starting point um this whole question of motive is, is a complicated one, obviously, but I think as researchers, we should continue to have this open discussion that, you know, things are complicated and they're, they're always going to be complicated. So we can't just assume that there's going to be the silver lining or silver bullet that's going to be able to solve this problem of quote unquote radicalization or political violence. I think that that's what I've learned um, over the years, whether it's looking at online data or talking with current or former members of the movement or law enforcement or community activists. Um, things are complicated for a reason. Brad, if you were to craft an intervention that would deal on you, um, uh, how many years have you been outside of the movement now? It's like uh, seven. Seven. So uh, eight years ago, um, while you were sort of at the height of of your career, if you were to craft something, uh, some sort of intervention to deal with you at that particular moment, what would you do? I think it's a little bit about what I've talked about already. It's like if, if there's... If there's resor- which resources have been developed. So there's, there's these former members, there's academics that are working on, on this more and more as we go on, especially the far right, that people are looking at it now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was looking to leave, there, you know, Life After Hate wasn't, it wasn't yet born. Like it just, it was born the same year, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you give uh, the listener a little bit of background okay. about Life After okay, Hate? Okay, so Life After Hate was born at a conference in, in Dublin called, uh, I think it's... Uh, per, uh, People Against Violent Extremism or something like that. It was a it was a massive international conference where formers from uh, m- many countries in the world, I forget how many, but um, they, de- they developed this Against Violent Extremism network, and that's what I'm part of now, and, and uh, I think uh, ISD is behind the, the development of that as well, right? So, um, but I mean, these types of resources have provided at least something 
So at least I can go online now, you know, if I'm like, oh man, like I'm, I'm intertwined in this stuff. I'm, I got to talk to somebody. Is there somewhere I can go for, you know, at least there's a resource. So there's life after hate, there's online resource. There's these against violent extremism network that you can go on there and you can make like anonymous reports. Like if I had availability to, to do that, I probably would have done something like that when I was thinking about leaving. It just wasn't there yet. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I had, I had family members. I, I think that's, that's an integral part of this is find somebody that you trust to talk to, uh, you know, as if you're involved in it and, and maybe they can reach out because a lot of the, I know a lot of the people that are involved in these types of movements are obviously not fans of the law, not fans of the government, not fans of, uh, you know, liberals or not fans of the whole system that's going on out there. So, you know, find someone you trust to talk to and maybe they can go to the, you know, help you look. Right. And at least you can suss out your because there's a lot of different things that I suggest that when we're doing interventions that I ask people to think about is, you know, think about where will you be in five years if you're still involved in this movement? So I thought about that myself and I'm like, likely I'll be dead Mm. because I had seen like 10 of my friends die over the the, uh, span of time that I was there. Okay, that's a big thing. And like prominent figures in the far right were getting killed. I'm like, this is starting to get a little too close to me. So talking about those real things, and especially with guys, if they have family, start talking about, hey, why don't you try to build a relationship with your family or, or your daughter or your, you know, start to get them the positive the attachments again in their lives, right? And that's where I think intervention should start, just trying to get them to build that positivity. Like I was talking about that compassion component of thinking about those times where they had good interactions with human beings and building, building from there. And then they can get to a point where they can make choices like, mm-hmm. you know, black and white firm choices in their life I'm leaving or I'm not leaving I'm staying I really like this which we like to not have that but unfortunately I like to say that that is a true outcome some people are that's what they do mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate would interventions have would have worked in, in your entire time at the movement like could could the right kind of intervention have worked at any of those periods yeah. or does yeah, it have to be when you're already kind of doubting, thinking about leaving? No, I think that, that's... Is that the right time to intervene? It can happen there, but it also can happen on the front end too. So if you're just delving into it, and if some, if one of us or whoever wants to come along and have a conversation with somebody, and now that there are resources that people can reach out, so they do reach out and they say, hey, uh, you know, my, my son, he's radicalized or whatever, and, and then we're here to talk to them, you know, He's at the beginning of the stages of the of the involvement, so maybe we can at that point have a discussion mm-hmm. about, hey, where is it? Where do you think this is taking you? And and you know that's where the formers do come in. We can discuss things about what happens while you're in that movement, the things you see, the things you do, and the things you don't get out of it, right? So that can help people maybe leave before they go, right? I don't know if that answers. And I think part of the problem in Canada, looking at right-wing extremism, for example, is um, information gathering. Uh, through the work that myself and Barb Perry from the University of Ontario have found was that information on the far-right movement was very fragmented at the time. Um, we didn't have much of an understanding of what the movement let, looked like, let alone what these what the group's ideologies were or who some of the key players were. Um, so I think in responding to terrorism, extremism, right-wing extremism, for example, uh, we can't be looking at just as a law enforcement concern. We can't be just looking at it as a policymaker concern or as an academic concern. Uh, it's a societal concern. Uh, there are multiple pieces, and oftentimes law enforcement, for example, might have a piece of the puzzle that academics m- might not have or community organize- organizers. Organizers might have a piece of the puzzle that uh, another party might not have. So it's about trying to work together. I know it sounds like pie eye in the sky, but what our research has shown is when you do get these different parties together to collect information on these particular groups, for example, you can you can in turn develop much stronger CVE initiatives or counter narratives or so on and so forth. So I think part of the challenge is trying to actually get information on these particular movements. Um, and that really does involve this multi-sectoral approach where we do incorporate law enforcement, community activists, but policymakers, the media in particular, um, a lot of them work pretty closely with uh, with former members of, of the movement, for example, who do have pieces of the of of the puzzle. So. Yeah, I, th- I think one of, one of our challenges has also been we, we as a society, as a Western world, like to put 
the the responsibility for this in the hands of law enforcement primarily and i would even take what you're saying a step further and and yes we need to engage with law enforcement and intelligence communities but we need to make sure that that is on the back burner that that is not the the primary authority because i i think one of the things that in this podcast that we've learned already is that the people who are engaging in this and the people around those people engaging in these um, uh, uh, violent activities or more or less violent activities, they have a strong distaste or at least yes. an, uh, an antitrust relationship with the police. So so having the police being the f- at the forefront makes no sense, yeah. theoretically, conceptually, methodologically. I remember late, like late time when I was in the movement, it was like police were played an okay role there. Mm-hmm. Like they, cause I, I, I was okay with it cause I wanted to leave. Right. It was at that point where I wanted to leave. So it's fine. But you know, when during, there's no way you can't it like you freaking, you can't do that. Like you can't, Hey, let's just get the, the guy over there. He's going to come help us. No, he's not going to help us out. Yeah. He's going to, he has to do a job. He, and we understand the job of law enforcement where they have to be very concise about their information that they get and the interviews they do and all that, that mm-hmm. has to be documented. Mm-hmm. And I think another important work out for, uh, no. and I think another important point, I mean, we have Brad Galway here, a former right wing extremist who was involved for 13 years, providing their insights into a particular ideology, a group, uh, the bad stuff about a movement, who better to speak to than insiders providing their perspective, whether uh, Brad, for example, or others want to work with community groups or academics or law enforcement. I think that that's an important piece of the puzzle as well. And researchers have picked up on that. Um, But I think that's something that researchers are starting to pick up on, but not quite yet, is asking former extremists how they think we can build resiliency against um, terrorism and extremism. Instead of just asking them to uh, provide their their story, I think we need to be asking them uh, what interventions did and did not work during the time that they were in the movement and how do they see a CVE program, for example, uh, moving ahead. So I think that it's very important to include the voices of formers because they have more knowledge than anybody else. Part of the issue from the academic side is that we lo- we want to treat this as something so contextual, so specific, that our ends to be very academic about it go very, very small. And then in our own realm, institutionally, we can't justify to a journal, to a book editor, to a publisher of a variety of sorts that we are doing a study with an N of four. Um, so it's p- uh, partly that's a, that's a failure um, because we could do a study with you, Brad, mm-hmm. but that's an N of one. And then crafting interventions based on that scientific evidence, therefore, also lacks because we can't develop these strategies that work so personally and at such a contextual level because it's very difficult to craft a blanket. Yeah, Yeah. like we can't get the broadest stroke uh, and and think that those interventions will work um, at at the the very specific level. So I think there's a lot of challenges here for us, academically speaking, um, to make sense of of this issue. So on that note, I I kind of want to um, uh, wrap up with a question for all of you of where do you see the future of studies with right-wing extremism where do you see um the the future you're uh, so for the listener brad is pointing to ryan uh, and amar as if they're the, the but i think you have a lot of insight as well and not just right-wing extremism but also terrorism studies in general because um it's political violence at the end of the day these things are political um whether it's religion whether it is politics um they are intertwined um regardless of what some people might want you to to separate those two things they are intertwined to some degree we can look at them together i think so i think the future of terrorism and extremism research should be interdisciplinary i think uh, terrorism has suffered from too many political scientists trying to bombard um the industry uh, and I'll use an example I think that uh, computer scientists for example working with criminologists or political scientists um, to look at online big data for example um, each of those parties have a different specialization computer scientists for example they can manage data they can develop algorithms and the social scientists can develop research questions that are important um, and then they can go together and try to develop or 
have a better understanding of complicated issues. But I think at the end of the day, um, terrorism and extremism studies, it seems like it is starting to go in the direction of uh, interdisciplinary collaborations between parties. Mm -hmm. So that's my take on it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with all of that. And because you've already said that, I'll think of something else. Um, <laughs> I think um, I think what ne more needs to happen is actually what's already starting to happen, which is the more building of primary data. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'll... I think we've spent decades not actually talking to real people um, because of the nature of the field, because nobody wants to go into the mountains of Afghanistan to talk to terrorists. Um, but but because, those, because those things <laughs> are, are, are changing, I think uh, building a real primary data set of actual interviews with people who followed the path, left the path, um, is, is what needs to happen more often. These big data sets um, have kind of dominated the field a lot in terms of target selection and mm -hmm. what kinds of weapons do they use and where, you know, all those kinds of things have been done to death. And I think, you know, you could do more of that better. Um, but I think we still need to go down to the yeah. basic questions of why, why and how people get involved. Yeah. And I want to I want to make a plug, I guess, for some of the work that Brad and I are doing right now. So uh, we're working with computer scientists. Uh, I'm a social scientist, criminologist. Brad is a former. We're drawing from his insights into trying to suss out keyboard warriors online versus people who are actually engaging in violence offline. Um, so yeah, I think Amar makes a great point. Uh, it's a challenge uh, as, as researchers to find and work with, closely with people like Brad who have firsthand experience. Um, and I think that if we do continue to, to build these types of relationships, we can have a better understanding of people who, who through their experiences, who they know as violent people offline, um, we can start to build a better understanding whether people are becoming radicalized online, for example, who are people to worry about offline and, and so on and so forth. So I think Omar makes a good point. It is a challenge to, uh, to be fortunate enough to work with folks like Brad. Um, and it's uh, just as much of a challenge to collect empirical data, speak with people who have firsthand knowledge. Um, I think computer scientists have suffered in many respects from that because they've just been so concerned with developing algorithms, which they don't really know what measures, um, without having uh, discussions with people who have firsthand knowledge, like Brad, for example. From my perspective, looking back on the researchers and looking back on practitioners that have been investigating or trying to reduce terrorism or counter violent extremism or whatever we want to call it, I think interviewing, doing like research interviews with mass amounts of cops, but I think you're doing that anyways. I don't know. But um, doing that and mixing that with the, the interviews with formers and other academics who have been working, like maybe longitudinal stuff like, okay, so you've been working on studying terrorism for 10 years or plus. So, you know, let's, let's take those people and just interview 10 plus years people and see what they've, you know, what key components have they found out? together in, 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 in that zone and then talk to like key investigators that have been investigating terrorism since 2001, say if you want to make up a date and see what they have seen as best intervention points or best practices. And then, of course, interview formers and talk to them and see what they think as well. And maybe a mixture of those. I don't know what would come out of that research. Maybe something good, maybe not. I don't know. I think I think Brad makes a good point. So like I said before, it's it's about this multi-dimensional, multi-sectoral approach to responding to these complicated issues. Uh, what I'm doing for my postdoc now, I'm allowed to publicly disclose it, is I'm interviewing former extremists, uh, former right-wing extremists and former Islamists in Canada, asking them how they think we can respond to violent extremism and hatred in Canada. But not only am I asking them to um, think about how they would respond to these concerns, but instead of me go in there with a rigid interview guide and ask these formers my own questions, I've included key stakeholders in this process as well, which I think is important. So I've had I've had over 30 law enforcement officials from across the Canada and uh, I believe 10 community activists from across Canada generate lists of questions that they would want to ask um, former extremists. So I think it's important to include these key stakeholders in the discussion simply because they have a completely different perspective mm -hmm. than uh, folks like some of us in this room. Um, they might have more of a strategic understanding of these complex issues. So bottom line, it's it's really important to include these key stakeholders in the, in the discussions because oftentimes these, these different uh, communities work in silos and that's probably the biggest threat to the future of terrorism and extremism research. Yeah, and I, and I think like the manifestation of interventions happens at the multi-sector level. At the end of the day, whatever happens on the ground in terms of trying to, to counter some of this behavior and activity is 
engaging all of these stakeholders. So we can't ignore them even in our own research and in our own work. And I think it's also important for us as researchers to uh, take on our own academic system a little bit and to try to, 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 to move the pendulum away from, well, we need to talk to 1,000 people <laughs> in order to get a representative sample of X, Y, Z. Ryan's pointing to Omar. Do you have a, a thought on that? <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think talking to as many people as possible is good. It's always you're good. You're never going to get, yeah, in this field, you're never going to get very high numbers. Hello, I'm Derek Silva. Would you like to talk to me about your engagement in terrorism? No. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> the other thing that's important, of course, is to talk to the, uh, what, what I call the, the people who barked it but don't bite, right? Yeah. I think yeah. um, we've had, a, I've had a few postdocs in the past where I talked to people who grew up in the same neighborhood, have the same grievances, uh, went through the same life experiences, but didn't engage or didn't travel abroad. Um, and you can learn a lot from these youth who had every reason to go, according to the uh, why you know people how other people from the neighborhood went. It's the radicalization uh, manual, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is how it happens. Yeah, this is how it happens. Um, and they didn't, right? So mm -hmm. there was some kind of pro-social mechanism that they resorted to instead, whether it was a protest or uh, sometimes getting involved with neighborhood community activism or whatever it is. Um, and it becomes very complicated because you realize this is a very personal thing, uh -huh. right? Uh, of course, it's a group dynamic, but it's a very personal thing. Um, and, you, and, and so from a law enforcement perspective, from a policy perspective, you're never really going to get there. Um, you're going to kick the can down the road quite a bit before you get to, oh, so you both have both arrived in Canada as refugees. You both have parents who are divorced. You both have all these political grievances. <laughs> um, but your friend left, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And the per person's like, I, I, don't, I don't like the heat, mm -hmm. right? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you're kind of left with, oh, okay. Like, how do we actually theorize something like that? There realistically can be a simple answer like that. Like, yeah, I know of course, yeah. tons of my old cohorts that I was hanging around, criminal guys or whatever. If you told them, hey, join the white supremacy movement, they'd be like, yeah. Like, I'm not doing that. Like, yeah. why would I? The guys you mentioned that came for a week and left, they're like, oh, this is very violent. I don't like fighting. No. Peace out. Like, yeah. they just, maybe they just want to be, like, racist, like, sitting on their porch drinking beers or whatever. Like, they don't want to get involved in a group or whatever. They don't whatever. want to mobilize, like, yeah. yeah. It could be anything, and that's the problem. Yeah, and I think we've all, all of us have touched on in a variety of ways all of the social pull and pull factors and and how complex this is and and how the remedy is not going to be in what i like to call risk factor bean counting which is <laughs> it's like asking why people go to uoit <laughs> <laughs> wow wow this 50 percent of this room went to uoit yeah. so we're doing all right and also 50 percent did not oh well. true yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's always another side of that <laughs> that's basic stats right? but i i, yeah. <laughs> I think that w that all of our work really highlights the, the a lot of the issues related to to both social and very very micro level um, push and pull factors that that go into um, engaging in a variety of forms of of political violence, um, uh, and I think we need to investigate these things much more uh, at the level that moves beyond just individual psychopathy and really looks at uh, community level, uh, friendship level, peer groups, family, um, uh, SES, um, race, class, gender, all of these things that we in the social sciences have long looked at for explaining criminal behavior. Um, but I feel like in this uh, uh, particular area, it's a little bit lacking. It's a little bit behind. Um, so I want to thank all three of you for your um, great work uh, and more importantly, coming on to What's That Noise. Um, so we always end this uh, podcast with shout outs. Now is your time for, I know Amar, you're on Twitter. Um, now's the time to shout out um, uh, if you want to shout out anything. I love you, mom. <laughs> Ryan loves his mom. I love you, Ryan's mom. Uh, so does Amar. Uh, I guess Brad, do you as well? Uh, sure, yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> um, so I can be found at r underscore scrivens. Yep. I'm at Amar Amrasingham, and I'm not going to try to spell that. So. You're just going to have to Google Just it. find it through any of ours. <laughs> You're probably following him already, and he's not following you back. He's got like 20. Yeah, yeah. It took me, it took me months to get the follow back. Yeah. Months. I had to tweet at him and everything. I had to retweet. It took me months. Brad? Uh, I think I'm at 
BJ Galloway 1717. Great. Well, thank you all three of you for coming on. Um, now let's go have a conference dinner. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Tommy N. Cook. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Spotify. Until next time, keep listening for the noise.